I'm David Karras, and you're listening to Polyco, Conversations in Political Economy. What is happening in Rwanda is a kind of push towards more market-led agendas. And this has conflicted with their capacity to embrace more structural transformation. So the more you liberalize, especially with things like capital controls, exchange controls, the more difficult it becomes to reverse this. And the more you get rid of your domestic capital, the more difficult it becomes to encourage their growth again. This uh, tension between the two trajectories of development, statist and the neoliberal model, is leading to a very conflicting development strategy that obstructs possibilities for future transformation. British Bihuria from the University of Manchester has a long expertise in studying industrial policy and comparative developmental trajectories in Sub-Saharan Africa. In today's episode, we first talk about the broader context of a supposedly post-neoliberal developmental framework where industrial policy is again on the agenda, even though problems such as fiscal space, structural change, access to technology, and dependency on foreign capital have changed little, if at all. British also shares his analysis of the Rwandan case, the apparent success story of a quote-unquote growth miracle, which some explain with robust Weberian state capacities, while others brandish it as a model of financial liberalization and good governance. British analyzes a domestic political economy, where market liberalization marginalized domestic capitalists who couldn't as a result play an active role in diversification and structural change. Far from the miracle narrative, the Rwandan trajectory thus illustrates the inherent tensions and contradictions which traverse developmental strategies of state-led development at the current juncture. My name is Pradesh Bihuria. I'm a lecturer in politics, governance and development at the University of Manchester's Global Development Institute. I finished my PhD at SOAS in the Department of Development Studies in 2015. I was working there as a senior teaching fellow as well. My PhD was primarily about Rwanda. I am Indian and I have been always interested in the question of why some countries are poorer than others, especially as an undergraduate. As I was at SOAS in my master's, I became much more interested in this from a structuralist perspective. So I also became interested in it from a particular case study perspective. I had also taken a class, I did my undergraduate degree in the US, on Rwanda. And of course, in Rwanda, there is this very popular idea that how did the Rwandan miracle after the genocide happen? So I was naturally attracted to that, like so many other people are, to understand this story, the political determinants of the story. So I was interested in studying this really from a historical political economy perspective. Of course, being at SOAS, it's uh, in a pluralist economics department. It's one of the few places you can actually embark on these kind of studies. So I then taught at the LSC for two years. I started developing more comparative research between Rwanda and Ethiopia, which I've sustained since then. I worked as an LSC fellow in the Department of International Development there. And then I won the Hallsworth Research Fellowship which is a three-year fellowship on political economy, and I moved to the University of Manchester's Global Development Institute. Luckily, I won some broader funding, which meant that I could really develop my research into a a direction of analyzing first the political determinants on a broader level of four successful growth stories, Rwanda, Ethiopia, Botswana, and Mauritius, with, of course, Botswana and Mauritius being much more shadow cases than Rwanda and Ethiopia, where most of my research has been there. And then a related research agenda, which is understanding where state business relations and the role of domestic business figures within this. I also have a slight developing project on Indian political economy, particularly related to renewable energy. But broadly speaking, all my research 
research looks at the contemporary challenges facing economic transformation, India and Sub-Saharan Africa. The two fastest growing populations in the world, probably half the world's population in about 15 to 20 years. Before we actually start to talk about the Rwandan case, I would just like to contextualize the context of development and industrialization in post-colonial sub-Saharan Africa. Before the 1980s and the Washington consensus between independence, roughly, and uh, the 1980s, were there any breakthroughs or successes in terms of industrialization? Or is it really a story of an unmitigated failure of these post-colonial countries to develop domestic industrial capacities? So I think that's a really important question. As you mentioned, there is this tension between talking about the uniformity across the continent and the particularities of specific countries, right? So, of course, we are very familiar now with the deindustrialization story, Danny Roderick arguing that Africa has deindustrialized. But, of course, as you mentioned, there is variation across countries, but even within countries. Of course, Ethiopia is one example of a country that has industrialized, uh, I mean, has at least emphasized industrialization and made it very particular to its uh, development strategy since the 1990s. There are other stories across the continent, and there is a historical legacy of many domestic diversified business groups existing across the continent. And this is really missing within our story. During the 60s and 70s, there was a very vibrant debate about the position of domestic capitalist classes in relation to national depend- national independent development strategies. There was a more dependency school argument that highlighted that any domestic capital was basically comprador to the interests of foreign capital. So they were obedient to the interests of foreign capital. There was another group, Colin Lays and others, who argued that this did symbolize some kind of national independent development strategy. But of course, for many reasons, intellectually and ideologically as well, with more market-led reforms, less space for heterodox theory, etc., and country case studies, we basically developed a huge blind spot in the Anglo-European literature, and even in terms of the African literature in African universities to some degree, about what happened to domestic capital. And of course, domestic capital has grown despite academics ignoring them and become extremely prominent. And they are actually in many countries in East Africa and Southern Africa, very vibrant domestically in terms of building regional markets. So the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa, they did try to develop this kind of regional industrialization strategy anywhere in the 60s and 70s. So though the policy didn't really follow, the capital did try to survive. And I think that's an important story. And now, of course, it's not just that old story. You can't really ignore the way Dangote and others, you do have these kind of stray examples. Of course, Nigeria has deindustrialized, right? But there is Dangote's case where the backward integration plan of the Nigerian government was used and built primarily to support Dangote's growth and diversification across the continent. Once we have the global financial crisis in 2007, and more broadly, the legitimacy crisis of neoliberalism, we also have, of course, the emergence of China and its resilience to the crisis. So how do all these things affect developmental policies in sub-Saharan Africa over the past decade or so? It is obviously very welcome that industrial policy has been revived rhetorically by governments, but also academically and also in policy for government. But of course, what has happened is most of it is really in relation to a toned down neoclassical version 
market conforming industrial policy as Ha Jun Chang criticizes Justin Lin about with Justin Lin's new structural economics. The other side and perhaps more popular and that has even been before the financial crisis but has definitely gained steam since is the influence of the global value chains literature and this is really prominent because for decades now there have been consultants doing industrial sectors case studies where basically industry studies are done to help domestic firms or foreign firms link up to global value chains these two dynamics are probably more predominant but what has been happening more is a push on the margins towards uh, domestically oriented industrial policies capturing domestic markets raising tariffs of course there's also an intellectual heterodox community developing even within the continent Arkabi Okobe's wealth of work on industrial policy Fiona Tregena in South Africa and many others in Oh, and there as well, developing a community of scholars, a board uh, heterodox uh, community that was developed closely linked to SOAS. But this, these domestically oriented policies on the one hand and the more export-oriented strategies on the other, they both share in common this kind of replication problem. The way they are being implemented is in terms of replication. So when banning used clothes happened, when East African countries tried to ban used clothes a few years ago, everyone just agreed on the same thing to be implemented everywhere. And this has a problem because it's not adapted to political realities. So it's not adapted to the context of what exists on the ground. So policies continue to be quite blind to domestic political realities in many ways. More importantly, they also are quite what they what these policies do ignore except some Hajun Chang and even Akabi's work to some degree it ignores the situation place of linkages in the story and even for domestic production we're not really thinking about how linkages can be developed either for export or for domestic production either regionally or domestically and if continental integration is to be the future this is essential so as we are talking about these broader paradigm changes in terms of more of a neoliberal conception, maybe up until the global financial crisis, which is gradually being displaced to some extent by more of a revitalization of industrial policy. But is it more of a, of a hybridization of these of these different paradigms that we that we see and a coexistence of these of these frameworks, as you mentioned, the global value chain framework, which is still largely based on the idea of leveraging foreign capital and foreign investments and when industrial policy makes a comeback, it's maybe not the type that we saw in the 1950s, 1960s, obviously in the context of a changing global financial system that makes it very unlikely to replicate exactly the types, these types of policies. So at the level of countries or, or even sectors, do we see the coexistence of these strategies even within a, a single national economy or uh, a hybridization or are they neatly separated in terms of what sub-Saharan African countries are trying to do? I think you are right. There is this kind of parallel structure existing where these kind of industrial policies are operating often against one another. For example, I, I've been doing some research in Uganda on their attempt at banning used clothes and also building up the domestic public procurement, using public procurement for industrialization. Now, there were two main firms there, one which had historically in its different incarnations produced for the domestic and regional market two different apparels firms and the other which was a foreign investor who came to take advantage of the african growth and opportunity act and everything but arms so any preferential trade agreements so when the banning of use clothes happened in uganda that foreign investor was against 
going ahead with the policy because the U.S. was saying that if you go ahead with it, we'll withdraw that access. The domestic company was never interested in exporting. They had tried and the government had tried to convince them and they were never interested. So they had been pushing for this for about 10 to 15 years. So they were clearly against each other in this policy uh, when this policy was implemented. And this shows the way in which these two different parallel trajectories are kind of obstructing a coherent kind of policy. But more importantly, I think, uh, while this always occurs slightly differently in every context, Ithandika Makandavir talked about the, the importance of kind of placing the effect of market-led reforms across the continent at the heart of our analysis. And one of the key things that happened at the government level was a shift in power according to him, from the expenditure ministries to the budgeting ministries. And this, I think you can see any country that went through structural adjustment. And that has an effect on planning. But it also means that basically all the powerful ministries are geared towards austerity and ministry of trade and industry, and particularly industry or any kind of industrial policy planning, loses power in relation to the other. And also there's an ideological power, of course, which where there is a market-led consensus in many countries. Let's just briefly talk maybe a little bit about China's role in all of this. We hear and read about the infrastructural projects, about the loans that China has uh, has delivered to many African countries, but there is also the so-called commodities supercycle between 2004 and 2014 which benefited some African export sectors. And I was wondering about what the consequence of this was on industrialization in Sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, I think this is a really important question. Of course, as you mentioned, the Chinese commodity demand did create this kind of illusion of Africa rising, for example, where there was very little industrialization at the cross-continental level average-wise at least. But the effect that it did have was many countries in the 2010s, before the pandemic, of course, even before the pandemic, were facing foreign exchange imbalances. And as a result, they had to go to the IMF and the IMF forced them to devalue their currency, etc., etc. And this happens regularly still. So IMF may have rediscovered industrial policy, but they still continue with this. And I I at least don't really see any shift. Uh, I mean, any major shift in terms of policy space, what the IMF is doing in other countries around the world. Uh, I mean, sure, there may be a slight shift, but nothing paradigm shifting in that sense. Of course, China's effect, though, will vary across the context. And we are not really sure about how commodity demand may increase or and decrease. And it really will depend on, say, Rwanda, for example, it does depend quite a bit on China for its the demand for coltan, for tin. Zambia would be much more dependent on copper. Uh, for In Botswana, for a long time, there has been this idea that diamonds were not forever. <laughs> but again, recently, in the last few months, diamond prices seem to be picking up. It's unclear what that will do in terms of, but it will really depend on the structural relationships of each economy with the outside. I would also like to ask you about the African continental free trade area, which is uh, the the massive project of uh, basically uniting all national markets, which is underway. There are still some parts which are under negotiation in terms of competition policy and uh, intellectual property rights. But is this initiative in the continuity of more of a liberal Ricardian strategy, which basically equates free trade with development? Or is this, on the contrary, a shift to a pan-African infant industry protectionist type of framework in which some African countries are attempting to industrialize? No, thanks, David. Yeah, so I guess this is a big question now 
facing many countries. Funnily enough, uh, President Paul Kagame, the Rwandan president, has been at the heart of this, driving the agenda a little bit. So there is a history to this, of course. In the 50s and 60s with Pan-Africanism, there was some kind of attempt at, uh, at least at the regional level, using regional integration as a pathway to industrialization. It is useful to remind us of what happened then, that even in the 70s uh, in East Africa, for example, uh, Uganda and Tanzania were dropped out eventually because Kenya was cons- the larger economy, was with a more historical basis in manufacturing, was seen to be benefiting more out of the regional trade agreement. I think uh, symbolically it's very important, but there are different ways of viewing it. One is, of course, the market-led model, where freer markets across the continent will lead to perfect allocation of resources. A more negative argument would say that it will basically act as a drain, because as you reduce tariffs, it'll be easier for foreign countries to exploit commodities out of the country without those tariffs between countries. Uh, The other is that, of course, more powerful countries will benefit because they have the historical advantage. And, you know, it's quite useful to, it's quite difficult even to use the little loopholes. Like in the East African community, you can have eight to 10 special items which you list and you protect at a higher rate. This can can be used for industrialization, but no one does. Uh, I mean, some countries do a little bit, but it's not really used in an integrated way, even by the smaller countries like Rwanda, which should. Now, the truth is, it still seems a bit like a pipe dream. Even uh, travel-wise, which may be the easiest, it's not going to work out for the bigger countries like South Africa, with a lot of the immigration and the very hard immigration rules. And that's true also for countries like Botswana and others. In terms of using trade as a pathway to industrialization will require a lot of coordination at the sectoral, at the country level between countries. And even in East Africa, it's been so difficult. So as one of the more solidified and perhaps slightly more equal the size and power and economies within the region. It seems like a bit of a pipe dream at the moment. Now, in relation to what you mentioned about the domestic capitalists, which have not really figured very prominently for a long time in the literature. So you mentioned that they exist, which is good news. But what have we seen over the past couple of decades? Do we see basically a a regionalization or a transnationalization of these domestic bourgeoisies? Or do they remain stuck basically in a sectoral level and the sectoral politics thereof? Yeah, uh, so there are very trajectories of these groups. And it's not just a country level story. A lot of these groups tend to be either minorities within the countries because they were historically employed in manufacturing, or they tend to hold a kind of delicate position politically. So their diversification outside the country is a story of survival. That's how they survive to leverage their security. They do diversify outside sectors to diversify in terms of their position. They usually go with services and land. So they haven't been integrated to act in relation to industrial policy. They operate on the margins of the story. There are rare stories, of course, of Dangote influencing policy. There are many people who, many groups that do influence policy, but they're not influencing policy for structural transformation. Because that space hasn't been made available. And the dependencies of countries have changed substantially. The priorities are on external dependence. Financial liberalization and even the reduction of capital controls has lent itself to a kind of reduced need for these kind of domestic capitalist actors and also more fear of them. 
because they can easily find their rivals, even from outside. So yeah, I think that is a major challenge. Each country really have are the major success stories on the continent. Rwanda and Ethiopia now. And then there's um, Botswana and Mauritius. They have all struggled to build a domestic capitalist class that is geared to economic transformation. Even Mauritius has a very old Franco-Mauritian business group dominated economy. About five or six business groups nominate the economy. But they've never led, led in diversification. They've always followed. And this becomes clear when countries face balance of payments crises. And then to diversify, they need to rely on domestic capital to some degree to push this and take that risk. And then that domestic capital is not there or not integrated. And there's no history of that reciprocity. Yeah, I think that is a significant challenge which has made all the worse because of the legacy of market-led reforms and the legacy of financial sector reforms. I would actually now like to move forward to really discuss the Rwandan case. And first of all, I would like to ask you to talk maybe a little bit about the developmental trajectory of Rwanda between independence and the genocide. So before the post-genocide reconstruction, what did the trajectory of Rwanda look like? Was it exceptional in some instances? So there are some exceptionalities to it. So the first president after independence was Gregor Kayabanda. So he, his economic development story was some quite heavy protection for industry. I mean, minor foreign investment in industry for domestic market consumption, really. But there were foreign investors in industry, a lot of them being Asian origin as well, but even Chinese origin, not India, not just Indian origin. But it was largely remained, and it still is, a largely rural economy based around coffee. Its main exports were coffee, tea, and mining, tin, and some of it, which was always historically as a legacy exported through Eastern Congo. And that was re-exported out of Rwanda. And then... This peasant ideology, which he proclaimed at that time, remained quite key to Javier Mana's government, who he take, took over after a coup in 1980. But Javier Mana's avowed push for the peasant ideology was much stronger. It was much more about growing agriculture, growing coffee for the country. And this really comes through. Philip Werewimp uh, has written a lot about this, where he talks about coffee production being part of the nationalist identity of the country. Critics would say that uh, Habyar Manas linked that to building a Hutu ideology even early on, etc. Industry was reasonably high as a share of GDP until about 1980. The whole of the 1980s, really, there was a huge commodity price fluctuations in tin, in tea, and most predominantly in coffee, which created the kind of macroeconomic vulnerabilities that was the basis of the kind of political tension that went on. Now, after 1994, there was this real history in Rwanda of balance of payments crises being linked to political change. This is evident in the historical literature about Rwanda. Gerard Pounier mentions this, Philip Berwimp mentions this as well. That a major commodity price fluctuation, not always, but was often a condition on which coups happened, failed coups happened, because it really put economy in a kind of crisis. Can you flesh out a little bit the political economic understandings of the tensions which actually ultimately led to the genocide? Not that the genocide could be explained by just purely you know, economic factors. There are different narratives around this in terms of the salience of each issue. And as you mentioned, there were obviously broader issues as well. Now, one of the main things that happened during Javier Mana's time was that Hutu as an ethnic group were about 70% of the population 
Tutsis were about 20 to 25 percent, and this changes depends on who who you t- talk about. Now, the Hutu majority were also majority coffee farmers, as they were also majority tea workers and worked in mining, etc. A lot of the close Habiaramana clique, which was around Habiaramana's wise family, who are popularly called the Akazu, controlled the benefits around government and the private sector. There were also very famous Tutsi business people who were quite diversified, in both in manufacturing, but also had some interests in land. But the narrative goes that the Akazu controlled the rents or the benefits coming out of coffee, tea, and mining, etc. Now, when these commodity price fluctuations happened, what happened in Rwanda was an increase in coffee production. So there was an increase in extraction from the coffee sector and an increase in area of land under cultivation, under coffee. So the emphasis actually was that produce more and more coffee because that's where the exports were coming from. That's where the elites were. I mean, Habiaramana's clique was gaining money from. So it was not just that the macro economy was very vulnerable to coffee dependence or primary commodity dependence, but it was also historically Habiaramana's group or a broader group which the Rwandan Patriotic Front had less basis with that were benefiting from. But were also in a directly entangled in a capital-labor relationship with. So you wanted to break that kind of relationship. But another key thing perhaps to mention was there wasn't substantial liberalization before, before structural adjustment, before the 1990s really. So the state was a dominant actor in the economy. But although there were, and the people, there were some prominent Tutsi business people as well, as there were prominent Hutu business people as well. So how does economic and political reconstruction unfold after the genocide? And who are not just the domestic, but also the international actors that might be playing a role in this? I mean, European donors had a major influence in terms of the strategy. But I think from the Rwandan government point of view, it wasn't a particularly disciplined ideology in terms of market-led reforms in one way or in terms of state ownership on the other, right? It was much more, let's do as much as we can, as quickly as we can. As one former finance minister mentioned, we have to just do everything. It's not about doing this one thing or that thing. We have to build the economy because there's nothing there, right? It is very different from other groups at that time, other rebel-led movements that were much more Leninist, like the EPRDF in Ethiopia, like even a Museveni's movement in Uganda was much more left-leaning than the RPF were. Like they were much more broad in terms of ideology and thinking. But that was also had a reflection in terms of a lot of uncoordinated strategies being applied at that time. There was liberalization. There was significant liberalization. It was very foreign aid-driven. A lot of foreign aid was stolen to do other things that the donors didn't want to do. And RPF ideologues are very clear about that, that, you know, uh, we didn't get money from other places. So we just had to steal the aid and do it. And they did a remarkable job in rebuilding the country in some ways, right? Of course, this was violent. And there were, I mean, we are very familiar with the critiques of the Rwandan Patriotic Front. Not all are true, but there is quite a bit of truth to a lot of them. How can we understand change in the political settlements that stabilized the regime after after the, the genocide? 
Yeah, this is, I think, really an important question in a way. So how has the RPF changed over time? So when the RPF, at least formally, came to power in 1994, they were very broad-based. They included uh, political parties across the spectrum. They made sure that there was equal ba- relatively equal balance in terms of ethnic representation, etc., this gradually was reduced. This kind of balance was with a lot of prominent Hutu RPF members leaving the country in exile or being arrested by the end of the 2000s. Then there was a shift where a lot of prominent RPF figures, their different narratives of why they left, started leaving the country. Very close allies, once very close allies of President Kagame started leaving the country in the early 2000s. This group gradually became part of the Rwanda National Congress, but there were others as well. The Rwanda National Congress was originally composed of four people. That's Kayumba Mwasa, Patrick Karagea, uh, Gerald Gahima, Theogen Rudasingwa. Of course, most prominently, Patrick Karagea was killed in a South African hotel five, six years ago. So this led to a kind of shift in the country's political settlement as also a major shift in the political emphasis of the economy was happening in the sense that there was increased liberalization and less reliance on former domestic chosen capitalists, the most prominent of which would later leave the country in uh, about eight, seven, eight years ago called Tribert Rujigir. Now, Rujigir is an important figure because in terms of every diversification story, he was a leading investor. He was a leading investor in manufacturing tea, I mean, the minor manufacturing for domestic markets, tea, coffee, minerals. He invested everywhere. And in the banking sector, this is clear where liberalization was a strategy that was chosen to reduce dependence on domestic capitalists, in my opinion. And I've shown this in terms of a paper I've written in terms of the politics of banking sector liberalization. As we see the weakening of alternative centers of organized interests via liberalization, as you explain, where is the foreign capital coming from and what types of sectors does it target? The broader trajectory of Rwanda's development is a services-based one. And the services-based development requires investment from abroad and in the sense to support hotels, tourism, which is the largest foreign exchange owner in the country. And most interestingly, and perhaps very negatively, Rwanda has established its intention to become a tax haven. This is a long-term strategy. They've always planned it. It was part of the broader financial liberalization strategy. In my opinion, it doesn't even have much of a future because there's just no way they can break in to even the lower rungs of the offshore sector. Uh, There's a different story about that and how difficult that is, actually. But they just uh, launched an international financial center last year. Of course, Rwanda is not the only African country to do this. Ghana has stated its intention to do this. Nigeria has talked about it. Kenya is well on its way. So there is this reliance on foreign capital coming in, whether that's through aid or investment. But this also symbolically has held up the government and allowed it, I think, the game is to shift its political bases, right? Build up new sources of domestic capital, which often are not really, are often diaspora, or they don't really stay long in terms of diversifying and helping the diversification story. There aren't many stories of prominent domestic diversified capital which are outside the party and outside the military. So there are these party and military-owned groups, which I have written about as well. There is one. Uh, there are one or two prominent Rwandans have diversified in agro-processing, which is quite a positive story, although not talked about in Rwanda. 
I mean, the reason why we're talking about Rwanda is because, as you mentioned at the very beginning, this has been portrayed as one, one of the few examples of a successful growth regime in Africa. Now, how would you position your analysis of the political factors that were behind this trajectory? Thanks, David. This is so. I see broadly three narratives about Rwanda. So, of course, we know uh, the very critical narrative about Rwanda being a dictatorship, accused of human rights abuses, and an increasing concentration of power around President Paul Kagame. Then there's a kind of narrative pushed by the World Bank that. The de development has happened because of liberalization and investment in health and education. Growth plus capabilities. So your perfect good governance dynamic. And Rwanda does very well on all good governance indicators. So a perfect emblem of the World Bank's, what the World want, Bank wants development to be. The third story is a heterodox narrative, uh, which again is, I think, has this problem. Most, most popularly portrayed by David Booth and Galuba Matebi, which talks about the role party and military-owned enterprises have in promoting economic transformation. Now, I think there are half-truths in all of these stories. Rwanda ha has been quite exploitative towards its population. There are signs of dictatorship in the country, etc. But of course, historically, East Asian developmental states were dictatorships as well. That doesn't make excuse this. But the, this depends on your understanding of what capitalist accumulation, how capitalist accumulation happens, right? And whether they, it is all progress and mutual benefits for everyone, or it is capitalism is always as intrinsically associated with inequality, violence and uh, allocating benefits to some groups over others and that is the political nature of this economic transformation story so for me i think it's important historically to place this in context with other late development stories so what have they done and what haven't they done they have promoted some kind of services-based development rather than a manufacturing-based development story which is actually until recently was growing less than it was in the 1970s and 1980s, according to one paper, uh, one international growth center paper. So actually quite mainstream funded paper promoted this. The second point is that they have liberalized their financial sector. They have lost that crucial instrument for using uh, finance for direct credit for structural transformation. The major stories of diversification rather than growth have we really been the party and military-owned enterprises or the state have driven this. So it has happened to a kind of closed environment. But what is happening in Rwanda is a kind of push towards more market-led agendas. And this has conflicted with their capacity to embrace more structural transformation. So the more you liberalize, especially with things like capital controls, exchange controls, the more difficult it becomes to reverse this. And the more you get rid of your domestic capitalists, the less you, the more difficult it becomes to encourage their growth again. This uh, tension between the two trajectories of development, statist and the neoliberal model, to put it simply, although quite problematically, I guess, is is having leading to a very conflicting development strategy that obstructs possibilities for future transformation. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between this um, authoritarian state and the role of capital? This question really like has captivated a lot of debate about Rwanda recently. Of course, in American and British political science, there is a kind of tendency towards thinking about it in terms of authoritarianism and democracy, the two shifts, the two regime types. What leads better to growth and transformation? Now, 
in reality, it has very little to do with regime type in one way because most African countries are choiceless democracies, as Sandika Makandavir talked about. It's not really their choice. They had to do elections because donors forced them to do it when their country's economy were at their weakest in the 1980s and 1990s. And that's been kind of ir- irreversible in a way. Uh, not that it's a bad thing, right? In Rwanda, the elections occurred at a time in a particularly bad time when contributed to the kind of tensions that followed in the 1990s. The deepening of political openness towards divisionalism. And Peter Uven talks about this a little bit. Now, of course, Rwanda is much more on the authoritarian side these uh, at the moment when with Kagame winning more than 95% of the vote most of the time. And also with opponents of the government having very difficult times either leaving the country or being jailed. Is there an authoritarian advantage to economic transformation? This could be if there was a better capacity to discipline, but also to provide rewards, right? So in Rwanda, one thing that it has done to business or any kind of capitalist actors is it's quite good at discipline. It's not very good at the rewards after that. And that's resulted really in them either only being able to rely on places where rents are centralized, like the party and the military, or the government itself, because government-owned investment groups have come up. Actually, the Social Security Board is one of the key investors in almost every company sector. It holds about 60% of liquidity in the country. This kind of dynamic, it has a problem in terms of disciplining companies for technology acquisition, for further diversification, right? So I think there, it's not necessarily an authoritarian advantage either. It's much more about how these power relations are being shaped to build a kind of productive relationship towards economic transformation. When we talk about the broader population beyond the domestic capitalist class, what type of output legitimacy can this regime generate in the broader sections of society? I mean, this is a very contested question and in terms of how much how much have they delivered on what they have said they, they presented and promised. There have clearly been quite a bit of commitment in terms of health provision, in terms of at least the quantity of education rather than the quality of education. I would say there is a commitment from the government side to creating more jobs and to ensuring that more of the population is being uh, given opportunities to kind of uh, for employment and things like that. But you could say that this is also done in quite a negative way because they have to secure themselves, right? And the whole country's ideological basis is in terms of securing self-reliance. And though that self-reliance will never be achieved, it's an illusory goal towards building a kind of national identity against the past of what happened before, but also against the present of not being reliant on anyone. Whereas, obviously, the situation of late development is you're always going to be reliant on others. So, yeah, it's unclear how much they've been able to do that and how much legitimacy there is. But... I would say that they probably have not done what they have presented themselves to do. They would probably have done a little bit more than the critics have said that they haven't. So it would be much more middle ground. It's it's it'll be very difficult to measure it in Rwanda, and I think that's been a huge problem. Uh, but what we can see is that there isn't a popular movement 
against the government. So the developmental paradigm that ultimately emerged, which relied on financial liberalization and also some forms of, uh, of industrial policy, how do you see the sustainability of this developmental model in the longer run? I don't hold much optimism for services-based development, and I think the pandemic really, really makes these vulnerabilities salient. Rwanda has become so dependent on investing in a tourism-reliant hub strategy, being becoming a hub for tourism, for business, for financial sector now in the future. And the pandemic has really made this clear how, you know, when what happens when tourism doesn't arrive at that level. And we'll see if the World Bank comes back and helps them shore, that, shore up their economy. Because China doesn't have that huge an influence in Rwanda. So it's not like its presence in Ethiopia. China has a few firms and industry. It has a massive presence in construction and a bit in mining. But it's not a hugely important actor in the same way uh, as it is in Ethiopia, in Kenya, in Uganda even, where it's a prominent oil company. But it does dominate the construction sector. And so the negative thing is there. it is still a very undiversified economy. Right? Rwanda is still a very undiversified economy. What the government does have, though, is a commitment towards diversification now. Till about 2015, manufacturing was barely on the agenda. Now it even did perhaps a slightly difficult decision in terms of banning used clothes when every other country backed out. And whether, you know, everyone should be producing textiles and garments is another thing. But at least it builds, at least it shows more commitment to transformation. What it has also done is in terms of using its agro-processing sector. But there are equity questions with that. When the country, since 70, 80% of the population is still in rural areas and you're pushing effectively for agro-processing to meet the standards necessary for export, you need large farms. Large farms, at least, even if they're small farms by the European standard. That has equity questions in terms of getting people off the land, etc. And we need to know more about that. There's been less research of agriculture in recent years because of the closing up of research space to some degree recently. It's a difficult thing, as all aid development stories are. Um, but ge geographically, the failure to diversify has kind of and liberalized the financial sector, liberalized along market lines, has made it even more difficult. What they retain, though, is this kind of political commitment to that. In relation to what we already discussed a little bit, the African continental free trade area, besides the symbolic value of this, is there any material changes that we can expect in relation to Rwanda's developmental strategy? The Rwandan government has taken the position that regional integration is the only future for them. Kagame was one of the main people driving the East African agenda. East African community agenda, and as he was for the African continent free trade agreement. Their bargain within the government is because their governance, they think their governance is quicker and faster, they can benefit more out of that. And because their external links may be better than other countries, they can easily become a hub. If the strategy is up becoming a hub, you need more regional integration. So they've done a strategic thing of committing to that more. But it has a problem because their firms are uncompetitive in manufacturing against any Kenyan company, any manufacturing sector, really. Even cement companies, say when they uh, tried to build their cement company, 
they heavily protected the cement company and, and it's still heavily subsidized, though now they're starting to become much more competitive against Ugandan imports. It's very difficult for for Rwanda with its la- being landlocked in the center of the continent to compete against these other firms. The government sees regional and continental integration to be central to the way in which they're envisioning their future in terms of the center hub of the continent. If we think more broadly, especially as you mentioned a couple of times in comparative perspective, for example, in relation to Ethiopia, what lessons can we draw from these trajectories of, uh, of diverse developmental models? One relying a lot on Chinese capital industrialization. And then on the other hand, we have the Rwandan experience, which is more of a service-based trajectory. What does it tell us about the respective strengths and weaknesses of these developmental strategies? For me, I I would like, because of the historical engagement in relation to East Asian developmental states, seeing their story, and because of the benefits that manufacturing has within late development stories historically, even politically, in terms of building a political base, strengthening unions, for example, uh, with labor being more more concentrated in manufacturing, even in mining to some degree. My natural inclination would be that that, though it has its uneven consequences, that that is probably much more sustained, if it's, especially if it's, it's related to some kind of domestic market. Now, that hasn't necessarily been what succeeded in... Of course, Ethiopia doesn't look to be a greater success than Rwanda at the moment, politically especially. That's not necessarily because it went with the manufacturing route at all. Uh, what Ethiopia hasn't done in the same way as Rwanda is build a kind of broader health system, education system, though it's Rwanda still has a lot of negatives with the, those systems as well. And perhaps Rwanda has much more strength in terms of the military's presence across the country, etc. So I wouldn't say that there's one story above the other. But what's, what's clear is that there needs to be an attention to creating employment and sustained employment in each country. Rwanda is facing this problem because of its limitations in terms of investments in manufacturing. And in terms of uh, wage labor opportunities, perhaps they do a bit in the agriculture sector. But one of the failures of the Ethiopian model was that it didn't really invest in agriculture to the same degree as Rwanda has. It is really striking that Ethiopia has not really been able to take advantage of its coffee exports the same way Vietnam has. And Vietnam really invested a lot, not in high quality coffee, but really invested a lot in quality. In coffee production, which created foreign exchange, which is necessary for a balance of payments. And Rwanda has invested more in its agriculture sector. So maybe there's something there. But it's very difficult, I guess, just to end with saying that there would be one particular trajectory, particularly in the 21st century global political economy, where actually the two most successful African developmental states, which were democracies as well, but Botswana and Russia are both tax havens. So it's very, you know, so it's quite, it's quite a tricky thing. I didn't even realize Botswana was a tax haven until I started doing research there. <laughs> If you want to learn more about industrial policy and state business relations in Sub-Saharan Africa, check out the links to British's work in the description of this episode. You can also subscribe to Polygo and follow the podcast on Twitter to be notified of further conversations in political economy. That's all for today. Thanks for listening, stay safe, and take care.